You're listening to the Prestige 70 Podcast, a collection of intimate conversations with contemporary jazz artists with an eye toward the genre-defining music made on Prestige Records. Our guest today is a true force on the upright bass, incorporating effects pedals, his bow, his vocals, a horn section for his one-of-a-kind forward-leaning solo projects. He's in the vanguard of an exciting new jazz revolution, a founding member of the acclaimed group The West Coast Get Down, a collaborative group of musicians that includes Kamasi Washington, Cameron Graves, and Tony Austin. Miles Mosley, welcome to the Prestige 70 podcast. Thanks for having me. We are, as you know, talking about the history of this remarkable record label. And, and you know, so much of the catalog and the artists that, that recorded for Prestige were literally at the time reinventing jazz, going from the big band setting to smaller groups and, and focus on improvisation. And I'm wondering if, if you look at what you're doing today as a means to continue that reinvention. Absolutely. I think that we are currently living in a time very similar to what was happening over at Prestige, uh, in which you have a sort of hive mind of artists that are Mm. all feeling the same angst and same pushback against what has become kind of a norm, meaning we all learned from that. We all are of what jazz has been to this point. And everybody wants to continue to help it grow and help it grow in a way that makes it feel like it's ours. And it's not something borrowed and it's not something taught. It's something that we've learned and now we get to express ourselves through that. And I think that that angst is the same sound that you hear coming out of the cool jazz and bebop era in which all these cats are leaving prominent big band shows and going that night Mm -hmm. to play just with a couple of fellas really fast really loud really hard and really complicated stuff just to air it out and do anything different Mm -hmm. and what you see unfold over that that era at prestige is these guys go from being angry to being cool and being and like relaxing into this new identity and i think that that's what you'll see happen over the next you know decade of all the artists that are coming up right now. And, and, and the artists who recorded for Prestige, whether Miles Davis or Monk or whoever, you know, whoever it might be, in your mind, in, the, in that time, what set them apart? Why, why were they able to do exactly as you suggest, leave the big band setting and then go do this remarkable new thing? What made them different? Well, I think that if I had, you really do have to guess because, yeah, yeah. you know, you're not there. But if you, if you add it all up, you figure these guys are all playing in what has turned into socialite music, right? And so these big bands are now fetching big paychecks to play for the upper crust. Mm-hmm. And they've, it's come a long way. The music itself has come a long way from juke joints and, and barns to tuxedos and these massive ballroom events. So... At some point, I think what you, you'll find is that visionaries can see when it's time to move the ship in, in a different course mm. and, can, and can tell that they're no longer making music for their peers and that this music 
while it was important to get it to that stage, the music always wants to go forward and it always wants to be reinvented, particularly jazz. It is at its heart improvisational music that wants to be included in whatever is going on at the time, socially, uh, emotionally, spiritually. So I think what separates the Miles Davises and John Coltrane's and even as you move forward where it transitions out of that into what King Curtis does with, mm -hmm. with um, soul jazz and the music gained this massive popularity and moved into a new space, mm. an, an upper echelon space that's mostly listened to by, you know, the socialites and white white people in that area. And I think that you find that these artists want to bring it back home. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, one of the, you have a very interesting, uh, you know, kind of perspective, and we've talked about this before, of jazz as a family, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and that there is a family tree. It's that jazz is this, branching of, of services and influences. And if you trace anything back from, let's just, if we start from now and, and, and go backwards, you can't deny that, that hip hop is directly descendant from jazz. Mm. Soul and funk, those are jazz bands. Now, for a whole litany of other reasons that we don't necessarily want to get into right now, because it's a big conversation, but James Brown to me is a jazz band. You know, he's singing lyrics and there's improvisation and the band is cohesive and moving together in a way that is not entirely worked out ahead of time. And, that, and if that's not the spirit of what jazz is, I don't know what is. Yeah. That is a descendant of capital J jazz. Do you feel it's important for musicians pursuing jazz or you could extend this beyond that, any musician pursuing any particular genre to be aware of the history to know your history yeah i don't think anybody can do anything without understanding the history of yeah. it for music it's particularly critical because everything you're going to do every idea that you have in my estimation of it comes from this lexicon so all the ideas are floating in the same space and we all know there's nothing new under the sun but it's that it's happening now and mm. against today's influences that makes it feel fresh and so you don't study history so that you can emulate it. You study history so that you can reference it and you can learn learn from it and see why, see if there's something that has already happened that maybe you're missing that services what you're doing yourself. It, it if anyways, it's a, it's a shortcut to understanding the function of what you are feeling, mm -hmm. right? I'm not someone that uses my brain to make music. I use my brain to talk about it. Yeah, and I love talking to you yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but where I'm, I make music from a purely emotional place. Mm -hmm. And so the more information I have about where that's coming from, and then once it, the spark of creation happens, I can then look at that and go, oh, that sort of feels like a mix of this and that and that. Great, so here are, here, here's the sandbox that was given to me, mm -hmm. and I can dive into that sandbox more completely 
to bring it to fruition. Yeah. Um, um, one of the, one of the you know obviously great uh, elements of prestige and the and the music that got made for that label is all of those sessions at Rudy Van Gelder's mm -hmm. studio in New Jersey. Some of which, um, number one, Bob Weinstock was well known for not really having the time or money to allow his musicians to rehearse. Mm -hmm. So they would just go in and start. Mm -hmm. But some of these things would go on for considerable periods of time and amazing things happened. Why do I bring that up? When you were doing Uprising and working with the the West Coast Get Down on all of those records, Kamasi's record, Cameron's record, all those things that came out. It, when I read about it, it seemed completely analogous to what happened yeah. in Rudy Van Gelder's studio. Yeah, is is that your? Yeah, you, I, I I didn't even think about that, but I think you're you're right. I think what I the sense I get from from the Van Gelder sessions is that to use the term again, it is a sandbox. Mm. These musicians are, they're all on each other's records. I mean, one of the most important for me being Paul Chambers, and this guy defines what bass is for the, the modern times in that studio on all those sessions. And the freedom of being able to walk into a room that's set up ready to go and you know that it's, that that the muse is going to be captured correctly, mm -hmm. frees you up to just do the work. And so we had the same thing when we did all the West Coast get-down sessions where we were referring to a, a time in December 2016 or something like that, where we did 170 songs in 30 days. We should emphasize that. 170 songs yeah. in 30 days. It was a lot. We didn't talk to each other for a long time. <laughs> but we got but, but some great was, records. Yeah, oh, and, and, fantastic. And it really stemmed from the fact that, A, Everybody loves one another. Mm -hmm. Be just like on the prestige recordings, everybody's playing on each other's records. Mm -hmm. So that means that if I hear somebody do something awesome on someone else's record, I get to go, all right, <laughs> at two o'clock today, you're doing that thing right, on my right, song. Right. Cause that that's I want that yeah, too. Yeah. And so you end up sharing these something that would be a, f a beautiful fluke once gets to spread out and mature. And I think you can hear that on the prestige records as well. As yeah. you hear these, like there's a moment in time where uh, I think something on Paul Chambers' bass like cracked or something. Because hmm. the notes in a certain area start to get this buzz on them. That's a natural thing. But it's over a series of records that, and it just, it has this cool tone to it that you can't, you wouldn't be able to get unless it was like, that was the three-week window where his bass was broken. Yeah. And he made all these cool sounds with this, which he did it by, you know, playing on a broken bass. I have to step on a distortion pedal. <laughs> but when a kid hears that, it's going like, ooh, I want to make my bass sound like, like that, that all the time. Mm. So, yeah, I think when artists can just hang out and a place is up and running and ready to go, and there is some sense of urgency, which there's a sense of urgency there because someone can't pay for rehearsals. Neither could we. Mm. So, mm. You walk in there and you put your best foot forward, but the but knowing that you get to come back tomorrow, knowing that you have time, is when the muse shows up. Yeah, and 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 also developing that shared language, mm -hmm. which over the course of you know the, the the history of prestige, and if you you go through and you look at the you know the sessions. Look, these guys were together four hours one day, and then two weeks later they were together again for four hours, and yeah. they. 
you know they're developing this shared language yeah and that starts to that starts to come out in in the recording it's daunting looking at that list it is the pantheon yeah of modern jazz mm. it's such a powerhouse of recordings and then you start to piece together who's doing what when and you realize that this is this is more than just a label that that picked the right artist to make mm -hmm. records this is a a movement of musicians that are all trying to sort out a feeling together and all of them are coming at it from slightly different angles but they all feel the same way about how they want to change the music and so at times when it's foggy, it's foggy in a really beautiful way. And at times it's really clear and you can see this vision. You go, oh, that record definitely set everybody, you know, set the trajectory, a bit, like righted the course. It's, it's such a rare thing to have and such a wealth of knowledge. I'm so lucky to have it. And, and, and one, of, you know, one of the things that, that happened many times in these sessions is they did not know exactly what they would be playing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, there, there were a couple of different John Coltrane sessions, where they didn't really have a plan. Mm -hmm. And they went in, and Weinstock would say, you know, we need a blues. Right. Or we need a what, and, and something happens. Yeah. And I'm wondering, with, with the West Coast Get Down, was it in some way, not that somebody came in and said, you know, we need a blues, but somebody starts something, mm. a riff, a melody. Well, a, you I know. think it's, it's what is more similar for us is that in those prestige sessions, somebody wouldn't make the date. And all of a sudden, this is supposed to be a quartet record, and the piano player's not there. And now a whole new sound comes up. So now something completely unintended happens, and it creates a, like a rift. Hmm. Because they still cut it, it still sounds amazing, and it makes everybody play differently. So I think we had moments like that as well, where everybody would just kind of be in there, but somebody that we thought was going to be there didn't get there, or somebody extra showed up that we didn't thought was going to be there. Yeah. So now you've got two drummers instead of one, or you've got, you know, five horns instead of three horns, and it makes this happy accident accessible to you that I think is what is at the spirit of making great art, mm. is accident. Mm. And, and one of the things that, that I, I remember when you and I talked when, when Uprising came out, you know, one, one of the through lines for you in making that record was never taking the obvious mm -hmm. path yeah you always choosing either you know a more challenging way or something that might have been you know in a direction that is unexpected for me uh, i mean when i was making that record specifically with the drums i wanted i used the phrase no stock beats there are some obvious decisions you can make when you hear a groove and just don't do that one and we'll be cool <laughs> you know do anything Thing other else. than the safe thing, and you'll inspire everybody else to do something that is different. Whatever the most obvious move is, try something different first mm. and see if sometimes the right thing is the most obvious thing. But oftentimes you can sort of rewire your brain mm. when you force yourself out of your comfort zone and you get to tap into that lexicon that I'm referring to and you get to hear something that is trying to shout at you but you keep going the easy route and like that's not where the magic is all the yeah. time you know yeah you got to get to the other side to get to the pot of gold 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the challenges I would imagine that you would have today is that technologically there is so much available. Mm-hmm. And there, you could be endlessly tweaking Un- until literally, un- you know, until you drive yourself. Crazy. You could. I'm I'm fortunate enough to know Tony Austin, and he's the engineer and drummer for the West Coast Get Down, and he's uh, a massively critical person, and so he's a hard person to to like. How, how does he How does he keep you in line in that regard? Well, uh, I would tell you what he says, but it has a lot of profanity in it. But basically, the way he tries to find sound is he says. You plug everything in, and it sounds horrible. <laughs> plug in the word there. Right. And then you change something, and it sounds a little less horrible. And then you change something else, and it starts to sound good. And then you change something else, and it sounds better. And then that's your vibe. He's a searcher, but he knows what we truly sound like. Before you step in the studio, when you're just in a stage, when you're when you're in a rehearsal room, when you're howling at the moon at night, you know what we sound like, you know what our instruments, what we think we're going for. And all you're trying to do is bring that reality to tape. Now, that's a tremendously difficult task, but that's a different task than trying to create a sound no one's ever heard on tape. Yeah, um, in, in I, th- I think the last time we talked was at least a couple of years ago, um, and, and I know you're in the process of, of, of making a record. How have you evolved? In, the, in just in the time since last we talked. Yeah, well, quite a bit. I mean, as it goes to the record, I've I've spent a, I've grown a lot as a, as a songwriter. I've written a lot of music for a lot of different projects and a lot of and for myself. I've written a lot of songs, and the more you write, the faster the water flows mm-hmm. through 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 the pipes. Um, and I think more so now than ever. I know what I'm trying to say. I've grown on the bass, I've been touring a ton. I mean, I'm like four world tours in since the last Mm. time we talked. Mm. Two with myself, two with Kumasi, um, and you know, he just released his last record, so we're always out there pushing, and there is no better practice than stepping on stage and not being able to take anything back, you know. Um, And also, when you play with a group of guys that you've known for so long that are at such a high level and you are as competitive as I am, you don't want your solos to get anything other than, you know, the same decibel of applause <laughs> as your friend or more. And anything else is a complete and utter total failure. So you start to dig in a little bit and, and search for things you haven't necessarily had under your fingers on the bass. And I've been playing this instrument my entire life and for all intents and purposes when you zoom out, it is and will be my life's work to change the perception and the sound of the upright bass. I think I've grown as a human, as a man, as, a, as an artist, um, off the instrument, and I think that translates onto the instrument mm-hmm. more than learning a new scale or you know, simply playing faster or anything. 
But I also know a lot of new scales, and I play a hell of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I ask that because as you listen, you know, as you listen to the Prestige catalog, and then some of some of the live sides that that you've heard of, you know, whether it's Miles Davis or, or there, there was a remarkable package they put out with Miles, the last tour mm. Coltrane Ooh. in in Europe, and it's like everybody is taking it. To a to a different level, and there is that sensibility um, of that sort of competitive thing going on. I think that's a healthy environment for any innovation to exist in. Mm. I think that it it's something you see in in any area in which people are trying to push forward, be mm. it sports or music, uh, any art, any any technology. Um, it's a little different on a musical stage because it's it's particularly jazz where there's improvisation happening uh, one after the other is that it's unfolding before your very eyes and it it's sometimes very direct like when Freddie Hubbard gets up there and, and is going up against any other host of trumpet players that came for a cutting contest it's your pride that's on the line hmm. you know and i think that inspires you to be great and greater than you would be casually doing it by yourself or around musicians that are doing it just well you know what this circles back to our earlier question yeah. that's one of the main differences between playing the music that they were creating in bebop hard bop cool bop and the socialite big band era there was no competition in the big band. That's not how the music structures. That's not what it's for, and that's okay. All music serves different purposes. Big band music largely services, um, and in that where those guys were coming out of, services dancing. So it's you're not supposed to be up there making a ruckus. There's a structure. There's a structure to it. You know, I mean, it, it particularly those bands that they were railing against. I'm not talking about Duke Ellington. Um, so those guys are coming out of that for the purpose of wanting to spar with each other. That was the spirit of the whole thing. It's mm. like, let's spar. Let's just hang out. Yeah. And I think those prestige records sound like dudes just sparring and hanging out. And, and they're, they're competing one record after the other. I mean, I can, you look at like any year, there's dozens of records yeah. falling out of the yeah. studio. Yeah. It's, oh yeah, it's re remarkable. Is it your sense that the music you're making is connecting with a, a, a different generation of listeners? Yes, because we've brought it back to them. Mm. We are fighting through the noise. To be delicate is not an option mm. if you want to be heard. And people want to have a particular type of fun. And that fun comes from a particular type of beat or a series of, of, of types of beats. And so to integrate those into the music and the jazz is always going to be there because you, it is you. Mm. I am. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. So just because you learn this thing in the first place, like it's, it's within you and everything you're going to do is, is going to have some expression of that. But to ensure that you put the rest of the music that you, the artist, also love. And I, I have to make that distinction because you would fail if you try to pander to the audience and simply look at what's popular and go, oh, okay, well, if we put this and that and that and that and play all the things you are on top of it, it'll 
appeal to the audience. That's not that that is not the equation that we use, and I don't think that's the equation that is being used in the fifties and sixties. I think what it more so is is that you yourself like and are influenced by the music that is around you, and you take elements of it because it all branches from the same place. You take those elements and you repurpose them into the music that you make, and you don't you have no fear of being disliked by your elders or the people who taught you, and that's a, that's a that's a tough thing to do yeah. to like spend your formative years studying with a series of teachers and going to universities and whatnot, and then at some point in time deciding, well, this might make y'all kind of mad, <laughs> but I think it's got to be like this now, and I love you and thank you, but the way I want to make it is like this, mm. and I think you you see that that is effectively what was happening with those artists coming off of these big band uh, era going, well, I get it, but we just want to take five of us and go super hard yeah. in this club all night and drink and be merry yeah. and make friends. Yeah. One of the things um, we were talking about working in the studio, talking about being on stage, obviously, you know, music is an inherently collaborative mm -hmm. art form. What makes you a good collaborator? What makes one or what makes me you. myself? Well, hmm. I think my benefit as a collaborator is that I'm really well organized. Mm. So you're not going to lose a lot of ideas. I can kind of keep track of what we've done to that point. Mm -hmm. And I am always interested in um, hearing it the other way. Fine with that, but I don't placate. So if I don't think it's happening, or I think we as a group can do better, I'll suggest that we keep on digging. Mm. Um, and I'm also totally fine abandoning things. Like I will leave that idea. I'll leave this whole song on the cutting room floor and start a brand new one, no problem. Because I think that sometimes like good kids are born to bad parents, so to speak, in music. Mm. Like this is a great melody. We just put crappy chords on it and ruined it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't serve a purpose. Like it might be the bridge to this other song. So like instead of continuing to tussle with this, let's go over here and make something like create something fresh where we're not all tied up about it. Yeah. So I think I have a good ability to rudder the ship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in your mind, um, speaking about you know what ma what makes a good collaborator not you mm -hmm. but but what do you look for in a collaborator for me because i have that ability to kind of move around and 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 pretty fluid i like i do like stern i like people that are like straight arrows i don't know don't and i don't yeah. click you, well you, you want to be i want you to believe in what firm. you i want yeah. you to believe in what you put out there and not be sensitive if it's not the, the thing that, that mm -hmm. flies mm -hmm. um, but I, it, collaborating really is like alchemy you have to know what your what you bring to the table and what kind of person you want to be around mm -hmm. and some of my favorite collaborators are really mean people yeah <laughs> but you know where they stand but i know where they stand it's yeah. like cool yeah, i can't i can't let you i can't let you get away without talking about the importance of education mm -hmm. and musical training, mm -hmm. um, which you've had, you know, a fair amount of. Um, uh, and I know the Monk Institute here, you know, was an important part 
of of your upbringing. Talk about talk about from from your sense a what that gave you in terms of kind of a basis of understanding and why you think it remains important. Education. Yes. Well, for me, I've always said I, I there are a lot of ways for us as a society to skin the cat on any problem. Mm-hmm. It all starts and stops with education, as far as I'm concerned. So any conversation you want to have about anything, from clean water to jazz to homeless problems to racial tensions, everything starts and stops with education. Mm. And you don't see it unfold right away. And that's why I think people become impatient with it. It takes a generation educated specifically on something to have it come to fruition. I'm a part of a generation that came up with the floodgates kind of kicked open a bit because you have Bill Clinton as a saxophone player supporting the arts and supporting programs like the Thelonious Monk Institute, which was actually the West Coast office was started uh, in the living room of my manager, now mm-hmm. current managers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a product of people, a society compensating teachers to take a little extra time to teach kids something that they're passionate about. And myself and Kamasi and Tony Austin and Ryan Porter and Ronald Brewer and all this, the whole West Coast get down, we're like Formula One race cars of education. Um, you know, it's not happenstance. It's not just wanting to get better. You need that. You need drive. But you also need someone like Billy Higgins putting in all these extra human hours on showing you how to play together or Mm. hold the stick. It takes uh, Gerald Wilson to come down and spend extra time talking about the density of harmonies and, and, you know, staying after class. It takes extra human hours to raise a generation, to cultivate it. It's not a clock in, clock out kind of thing. You know, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter takes extra hours to come down and, and just be a legend in front of kids and be human and like, show, like become a role model. You can't do that from afar. So to me, uh, it's, it's the center of every step of progress, but it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how we're supposed to sell it to each other. I don't know how we get the greater good to double down on education. But all I can say is that when you look at the West Coast get down and you take any one of those players and you look at the fact that they all grew up together, from Terrace Martin to Stephen Thundercat Bruner, like that whole little pod grew up together. And we all had different backgrounds, different parents, different levels of, you know, access to to things financially but what we had above all was education and teachers that put in time and all of a sudden 20 years later you have an amalgam hmm. you have a glitch in the matrix but it's not it's what hap- it's it what you're seeing is tons of energy not just ours but those of the people around us, those of Bob Rodhead and Barbara Seely, who sit in their office and, you know, figure out creative ways to reward children for doing good. Because I could have just gone out 
and spray painted the you know bus station and thrown a rock through a window and said, forget it, I don't care now. Instead, I'm being rewarded for a different kind of effort. Same energy, it's just where you're putting it. Mm. And me putting my energy somewhere alone is not enough. It becomes encapsulated in this, this force field of love when people older than you come down and congratulate you for that kind of passion and sticking with it. Mm. That is, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't know how we can push that forward, but it's like, it's the only conversation I want to have. Yeah. Yeah. We should bottle that and turn that into a movement, right? Right. What you just <laughs> said. Well, I'm, um, I'm there with you. Um, um, so l last question. I know that you're, you're working on a record. Yeah. Um, um, what, what can we expect? Oh boy. Well, I think that this record is definitely bigger and stronger and um, you know my my intentions are, are backed up mm. by um, a lot of thought and a lot of energy and support from from all the musicians around me and all the all the artists that I've run into over the years and I think that you know if you like Uprising, it's that double folded but there's a cohesion because I, I think that there's a message about the human condition and and how how we how we are all kind of in this in this together good bad and otherwise and on the base I'm, oh, I just only try to do the impossible <laughs> so I just want to do something that's just and if you don't know anything about the base you don't it just hopefully is something that's appealing to the ear and it's something you can sing along but if you do it's ridiculous it's like it's so unnecessary to have to it's impossible it's the <laughs> sound of that. impossible That's the sound of impossible record. <laughs> perfect place to leave it the sound of impossible miles mosley thank you for joining hey, us man. always a pleasure that brother fantastic. i really appreciate it you'll find additional episodes of the prestige 70 podcast at craftrecordings.com forward slash prestige 70 or wherever you download podcasts this episode was brought to you by Craft Recordings, crafting the future from the past. Edited by Zach Stilwell and produced by Laura Saez, I'm Scott Goldman. Thanks for listening.